America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth where this great nation faces a monumentally important election coming up. Not only an election to see if the Biden administration is going to continue or whether it will be replaced by a Republican administration, but if that Republican administration is going to be headed by Donald J. Trump, it would have a profound impact on the Republican ability to win back the Senate. Who says? Well, Mitch McConnell says, among others, and he should know he is the Republican Senate leader. He would be the uh, Senate leader for the majority if the Republicans do take back two seats, which is what they need. Even if they lose the presidency, that's what they need. If they win the presidency, they just need one seat to capture. Uh, there's a provocative piece over at Axios by uh, John Crowshar, who's been a guest on this show before. And uh, he is the senior political reporter for Axios. Uh, John, what's the... Uh, uh, Josh, what is the, the impact of a Trump nomination for president on Republican prospects? Well, Michael, uh, the big picture in assessing sort of the 2024 map is that our politics are, are, are so polarized that you can almost predict how the Senate races will turn out by looking at the presidential race in the respective states these Senate, Senate campaigns are being held. And uh, look, there, there's there been a lot of polling, for example, that uh, Republicans have put out in a lot of these battleground states showing in the purple states or even the blue, certainly the blue states that Trump is well behind Joe Biden, but Ron DeSantis and certainly some other Republicans are competitive with, with, with President Biden. And uh, you also see this when it comes to recruiting for, for, for these big Senate races, where a lot of Republicans are reticent to run in a purple state, number one, because they fear a, a primary against someone who's more to the Trump wing of the party. And Frankly, number two, because they, they don't know if they can get elected if Trump is at the top of the ticket. So, you know, what we're seeing in, in the run-up to 2024 is that even though Republicans have a historically favorable map, you're talking about almost 100 percent on offense. Democrats aren't really contesting any, any state because uh, the map is just so favorable for Republicans this year. But the reality also is that a lot of the purple states we'd normally be talking about as top battlegrounds like Michigan or Wisconsin – um, they are looking pretty favorable for the Democrats, and then the window of, of races that are very uh, good opportunities for Republicans are limited to the most Republican seats held by Democrats, like West Virginia, Joe Manchin, John Tester in Montana, and the Sherrod Brown in, in Ohio, all states that Trump won uh, in the last election. So as, as we wrote in Axios, it's a narrower Senate map, perhaps, than what Republicans were hoping for at the beginning of the year. Well, you apparently spoke to Mitch McConnell for preparing this uh, piece, Josh Krashauer, and he listed the three states you mentioned, which are obviously very Republican states, states where Trump won big time, both in 2016 and in 2020, in Ohio and in Montana and in West Virginia. But 
uh, Mitch McConnell added to that state, the state of Pennsylvania, where it's uh, uh, David Casey, isn't it, who's uh, running for re-election, the Democrat. Uh, the uh, Given the fact that uh, John Fetterman won so comfortably in Pennsylvania, what's the Republican hope based on in the Keystone state? So a little bit of inside baseball in Pennsylvania, that is, that's Bob Casey's seat. He's the son of the former governor, kind of a household name in Pennsylvania. Uh, there is a really good Republican candidate who ran last time for Senate, uh, Dave McCormick, who uh, I think he'll be a very good candidate, but but is one that hasn't perhaps made a final decision about running. And I think uh, there are a lot of Republicans that really want him to run. And, and I think not, not that Pennsylvania wouldn't be a battleground. It is always a battleground. But they, they believe that if Dave McCormick runs, that it would be a competitive race, a very competitive race. If it was anyone else, uh, most Republicans candidly would say that, that Bob Casey probably has a distinct advantage uh, at winning re-election. And uh, Arizona is is also one of those other complicated states because uh, Kirsten Cinema uh, is going to be running, it, it appears, uh, for re-election as an independent. And uh, there is uh, Gallego, who is... Uh, uh, probably going to be the Democratic nominee. And uh, what does uh, Carrie Lake mean for Republican prospects in Arizona? We all bets are off, Michael, in Arizona, because because you may have, you know, not necessarily, but you may have Kirsten Cinema running as an independent and Ruben Gallego running as a Democrat. They could end up splitting the Democratic vote and allowing any Republican, even Carrie Lake, with a real opportunity to win with just a plurality of the vote. Now, I've talked to Republicans, even those inclined to not be against Carrie Lake, to, to be very open to Carrie Lake candidacy. And, you know, the, the best case polling they've seen is just pretty much a tie between Gallego and Lake. Uh, they, they are very worried about even in a three-way race, even with the dynamic being very favorable for a Republican in that scenario, they still worry that someone like Lake could actually still lose that race. But she has met with national Republican officials this past week. She met with, uh, I think, a half dozen senators uh, uh, interested in perhaps supporting her campaign. There already is a Republican, a sheriff uh, running that, that has pretty strong conservative and pro-Trump credentials. So this would not be a wide open primary. I think there'd be some competition there. But look, Carrie Lake would, would get a lot of attention and, and would make Arizona once again the center of the world for the, for the Republican Party and perhaps not for all the right reasons. You're you're suggesting in your piece that with this map, which is, again, it's just so tempting, it's so inviting, the democratically held Senate seats in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Nevada uh, could have been uh, toss-ups with, as you put it, a less Trumpified GOP with Maine, Virginia, and New Mexico representing second-tier opportunities. You mentioned Virginia, and uh, again, we've got Senator Kane there, who was such a horrible candidate for vice president with Hillary Clinton. Uh, surely uh, Governor Yunkin and the Republican Party in Virginia could make that into a race, no? Well, look, well, let's play some fantasy politics, Michael. Pretend Trump wasn't in the picture and it was a, a traditional Republican Party. None, the last six years didn't happen. Uh, look, Mike Gallagher, who you, you and I both know, is one of the most respected uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill with deep, deep knowledge of national security in China. 
He would probably run, and he still might, but I think it would be much more yeah, likely. For Wisconsin, for, for Tammy Baldwin's seat. In Wisconsin, right. He would be a very formidable contender as a nominee. You know, you go to Michigan, like Peter Meyer, someone who uh, spoke out against Trump and has a lot of money and has a very moderate electable profile. You know, he can't get out of a primary these days, but if we lived in sort of Earth 1.0 when, when Trump <laughs> – before Trump was on the political scene, you would see someone like that running in Michigan and giving Alyssa Slotkin a, a run for her money. You know, you talk, you know, the other the other state, you know, Pennsylvania we talked about already, Dave McCormick would be the type of nominee that would make that a race. Now, we still think he's going to run, but it's not, it's far from a, a sure thing at this point. Um, but you, you go state by state, and, and even in, in some of the bluer states, like Virginia, you certainly could see a scenario where a good Republican candidate could win the nomination and give someone like a Tim Kaine or an Angus King a run for their money in, in those states. But look, Trump, Trump is just, you know, you, sometimes you don't even see it uh, explicitly because Republicans decide not to run because they know they can't get through a primary. They know they would have to deal with all this negative um, attacks from the MAGA wing of the party. So they, they just don't run in the first place and it becomes a very winnable seat for the Democrats. Yeah, nobody wants to be called a rhino. Uh, Josh Kraushauer of Axios, appreciate your column. It's linked at our website at michaelmedved.com. When we come back, two new presidential candidates uh, openly debating whether or not to run, both of them from Texas. Which ones? We'll tell you coming up. 1-800-955-1800. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, there are two people who have one of them has run for president before. He's run for president before twice. He also has the distinction of uh, being the one person in the entire universe who has served the longest time as governor of Texas. Who is that? Uh, his name is Rick Perry. Remember, he was an uh, energy secretary. He had been a very strongly anti-Trump candidate in 2016. He called President Trump a cancer on conservatism. And basically, no one, not uh, Chris Christie, no one who was in that race was more outspoken about the extremism and the character questions uh, about President Trump as Rick Perry so it was a surprise when uh, when President Trump appointed uh, Rick Perry as Secretary of Energy, and he served for two years in the Trump administration. In any event, former Energy Secretary Rick Perry yesterday teased a possible 2024 presidential run while declining to support Donald Trump's campaign, becoming the latest one-time Trump appointee to distance himself from the former president's third White House bid. Uh, Perry, who unsuccessfully sought the 2012 and 2016 GOP presidential nominations, told CNN in an interview that he hasn't written off the idea of running for president in 2024, saying there was a lot of time before a decision would need to be made. Uh, when asked if he believes Trump should be the Republican nominee next year, the former Texas governor said, I'm still trying to sort that out for myself. Okay, this is not a good sign for his particular campaign. 
Um, I like Governor Perry. I know Governor Perry personally. I've had dinner with him several times. And I admire him. He was a good governor of Texas. But for him to say, I'm still trying to sort that out for myself, if you're going to run against Trump, I, you've got to say that uh, you should... You should, you should make clear, I don't want him to uh, be the Republican nominee uh, because you want yourself to be the Republican nominee. He may get to hear me call him names again, Perry added, alluding to previous clashes between the two men in the 2016 Republican primaries. If you'll recall, I didn't announce for president in 2011 until August, so we've got a lot of time left. Okay. That 2011 August announcement didn't go that well. It was supposed to because he had done so well in, as a Texas candidate, and Texas is the second largest state in terms of population and electoral votes. It's early in the process, I think, for any of us to sit back and say, I'm for this person or that person, Perry said. It certainly is something I haven't taken off the table, but the chances of it happening are probably a little bit slim. There's a lot of time left. We'll see how this all works out. Uh, do you remember he had one of the all-time embarrassing moments in a debate? And uh, this is in 2011 presidential debate. He was briefly uh, put forward as one of the major competitors uh, against Mitt Romney, a major threat for uh, the Republican nomination. And uh, then he couldn't remember the three federal departments that uh, he wanted to eliminate as part of his campaign. By the way, it's a good idea to eliminate federal departments like the Department of Education. But he couldn't remember the other two. Uh, he couldn't remember one of the other two. Uh, listen, it sounded like this. Three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, uh, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. <laughs> The EPA. third one there EPA. was energy. It was seriously. Is EPA no. the one you were talking about? Or? No, sir. You that. can't name the third one. The third agency of government. Yeah. I would. I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce, and let's see. I can't. The third one. I can't. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. The third one was, and that ruined his campaign. The third one was the Energy Department, which is the office he ended up taking. Uh, and, okay, another Texan, uh, Will Hurd. Will Hurd is outstanding. I, I am very, very enthusiastic supporter of Congressman Hurd. He, by the way, had an unbelievably distinguished experience in the CIA before he ran for Congress and became one of the smartest uh, members of the Republican caucus. He, uh, he made this announcement about his own intentions and his own possible race for the presidency, clip 10. When do you plan on making a decision? Um, look, a, a decision has to be made uh, about my future sometime very soon. Um, and like I said, I, all, I never leave, uh, leave I always leave Memorial open. Day. Before or after Memorial Day, uh, at this point? I think a decision on anybody on what their, their future mm -hmm. in politics has to be done before Memorial Day. Okay, it does have to be done before Memorial Day. And I hope that uh, Congressman Hurd won't do it. He would be the third black Republican candidate. 
Uh, the one who has a chance of actually getting the nomination uh, is, of course, Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina. Larry Elder, who's been a guest on this show, and by the way, would love to welcome Will Hurd on the show. I, I think Larry Elder is running to give him more of a voice in the Republican Party, but but Larry, I, I don't think, really believes that he can win. And I don't see how Will Hurd could could actually be uh, a likely winner for uh, the presidential nomination. Uh, meanwhile, there is this story, and it's upsetting because it's so unnecessary and sad. Uh, the Memphis Grizzlies guard, Jean Morant, handles the ball during the first half of Game 5 in the first-round NBA basketball playoff series between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Memphis Grizzlies that a couple of uh, weeks ago. The Memphis Grizzlies announced Sunday that the team had suspended guard Ja Morant after a social media video appeared to show him holding a handgun. We are aware of the social media video involving Jean Morant, the team said in a tweet. He is suspended from all team activities pending league review. We have no further comment at this time. A video circulating on social media shows Morant in a car with several other people, and at one point the NBA star is seen holding what appears to be a gun. NBA spokesperson Mike Bass said the league was aware of the social media post and gathering more information. It's not the first time this year that the 23-year-old has run into trouble with the league. The NBA suspended Morant in March for eight games without pay after officials decided that he engaged in conduct detrimental to the league when he live-streamed a video of himself holding a firearm in an intoxicated state at a club near Denver. Shah's conduct was irresponsible, reckless, and potentially very dangerous, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver said in a statement at the time. It also has serious consequences given his enormous following and influence, particularly among fans. Okay, why make a video? And on the Michael Medved Show, it is a pleasure to welcome back to the show uh, my friend and colleague Tim Mahoney, investigative filmmaker who is out with one of the big movie events of the season, which happens tonight. And it happens around the country. It's at FathomEvents.com. And it's part of a sequence of films that Tim has done, all of which I find fascinating, uh, because all of them are about some of the recent uh, archaeological discoveries that uh, break through and show that there is a scientific historical basis for some of the stories in the Bible. And the new film, which is called Journey to Mount Sinai, it's part two, is about one of the uh, greatest stories anywhere in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, the uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments and uh, and the entire Torah, according to Jewish tradition, on Mount Sinai. Uh, Tim Mahoney has been working on these films with tremendous success and, um, and, and all kinds of praise, including for me, for some years. So, 
Tim, what I, I think we're emphasizing is that people can come see Journey to Mount Sinai, this version, without having seen the first film, because this lays it all out there, the question of evidence and why it's important, right? Absolutely. These are they're really independent films from each other. Uh, it's a, This investigation will look at three Mount Sinai locations that are very exciting and I think uh, very entertaining. Well, they're entertaining partially because two of them are in Saudi Arabia, where the Saudi government originally wasn't allowing people to get anywhere near the suspected sites of Mount Sinai. Why not? Because I think of the political concerns with Israel and creating a, a historical connection uh, and foundation to the nation of Israel. And this is the, you know, at Mount Sinai is where the, uh, the, the 12 tribes became a nation. They became, they, they were the sons of Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob, and, and they became the sons of Israel and became the nation of Israel at this mountain where the covenant was made uh, with them. Yeah, and and what's what's fascinating about this is uh, that uh, Musa is the name of Moses in the Quran, and he was also a figure in the Quran. So they have a Quranic basis for believing that the Mount Sinai revelation happened, right? Right. And what happened was that people started to have a sense that Moses fled to the land of Midian. And as archaeologists started looking at, and, and historians, they could see that it really made sense that Midian was in the northwest corner of Saudi Arabia. And that's where I began this investigation over 20 years ago. And I, I heard of people that worked in the oil company, and they're in this movie, Jim and Penny Caldwell, and others that, that were trying to get to this location because they felt in some ways that the Saudis were trying to hide something. And so they were photographing uh, these locations and finding connections like pillars and altars and things that were connected to the biblical narrative, and they wanted other people to know about it. And it's taken me these 20 years uh, to really pull it all together. Uh, and, and what we're doing is giving people an opportunity to go someplace they might never go, and that's tonight uh, as a Fathom event. We're going to be in over 700 theaters, and it's going to be an amazing experience. Well, it, it is. I mean, watching the film is an amazing experience because part of it has to do with some of the remarkable aspects of this story because it wasn't just a handful of people. If you read the Bible, uh, there were 600,000 adult males. There were like a million people who were there as part of the Exodus, at least according to the biblical account. And what you actually look at is for places that could have accommodated that many people, that may have had that source of water. And then you bring in the connection of the golden calf. That, to me, was incredibly impressive and fascinating. Maybe you can explain. Yes. We were looking for a number of connections, actually, Michael. And as you know, in a Patterns of Evidence film, we take the scientific approach and we start looking for patterns that are mentioned in the biblical text. And one of these is, has to deal with artifacts, altars, pillars. The Bible says that Moses erected 12 pillars. And what's going to be fascinating is that there are several locations where we're seeing pillars. And there's connections, but many believe, is this is where the Israelites were. Not only that, but this golden calf worship question is, you know, looking for inscriptions that show the worship of a golden calf. But even more fascinating has to do with the fact that the people who worship this golden calf 
uh, it says that when Moses came down, uh, Moses was enraged, and we've all seen the picture of Moses throwing the commandments down and breaking. Well, then he ordered the Levites to actually take swords and to kill the people who were worshiping. And that the Bible records that over 3,000 people were killed that day. Well, what's interesting, and not only interesting, but I think intriguing, and I've talked with archaeologists that are fascinated by this, there is a location in Saudi Arabia in the middle of nowhere with a massive graveyard, about 13 football fields massive, a uh, graveyard of, of people. And why are they there right next to this location that could potentially be the real Mount Sinai? Well, there are also images that suggest a, a golden calf. And uh, some of the inscriptions that, uh, that you found, which are e- extremely thought-provoking. And why is all of this so very important? And it's basically animated your life for 20 years. Well, there is a lot of mainstream scholars that have dismissed the story of the Exodus, and they basically are put, you know, suggesting that it's just a wonderful fairy tale, and there's no historical truth to it. But the question then is, have they been looking in the right time period and in the right place? And when they dismiss it, what they do is they actually discredit a lot of people believing in the God of the Bible. And I think the reason why this investigation is important and timely is that it's showing that there is a pattern that God has acted in history. And this pattern is an encouragement to many people of faith. Not only that, but it's an encouragement to their children. You you can send your child off to college today, and if he takes any type of courses, depending upon what school that is, the professor will tell him that, you know what, there's no point in in, in necessarily trusting any of this as history. It's great literature, but it's not history. But that's not what the Bible is telling us. And that's why I think many people today have fallen away from their faith, is because they've been told that there's no background to it. But these films, these Patterns of Evidence films, are showing a tremendous pattern that these events really happen. And uh, by the way, you go along on the journey uh, with, uh, with Tim and uh, so many other Exodus explorers who, uh, uh, who you introduce, including some of the leading archaeological scholars in the world. The movie, again, uh, tonight in 750 theaters at Fathom Events. You can also find information on how to get tickets at our website at michaelmedved.com. We're linked to it. And by the way, Tim, I, 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 I'm sure this is not an accident. Maybe it is. Uh, but, you know, it's 10 days away from the Jewish holiday, the holiday of Shavuot, which actually commemorates the uh, giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, and which is a major Jewish holiday that most people don't know about. But that's uh, coming up right, and the film is a great way to, to prepare for it if uh, for people who are interested. Um, we, did you know about the Shavuot connection? No, but I'm not surprised, because you and I both believe in providence, right? And it's you bet. literally, I had no idea that May 15th was actually exactly 20 years after I came out of Saudi Arabia. When we booked this film, May 15th, 2003, I, I left Saudi Arabia without any footage. And I'm so excited to have completed this journey 20 years later, exactly to the day. Well, congratulations on it again. People can find information at our website at michaelmedved.com. Tim Mahoney, uh, great strength to you and success for the film. And it's uh, showing across the country tonight, Monday night, and then a second time, a second chance, Wednesday night, The Journey to Mount Sinai Part 2. 
We will be right back with the uh, next part of the Michael Medved Show. From politics to pop culture and from coast to coast, this is the Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show. I, uh, I I truly uh, do have to uh, present a golden turkey award on this. There is a statement by one of the presidential candidates, and uh, honestly, it'll be very very hard to see that uh, there will be any statement that is dumber than this winner of a golden turkey award. <laughs> than the Academy Awards. First and foremost, I'd like to thank God. Groovier than the Grammys. I would like to thank my wonderful agent. And more powerful than the People's Choice. I would like to share this with every single senator. Now, it's time for another Golden Turkey Award nomination. Thank you so much! I, I know that uh, my wife is listening to this, and she will get a particular kick out of it. Uh, the statement and the award goes to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., candidate for president, uh, anti-vaccine, uh, pro-environmental activist, Democratic candidate for president of the United States. He right now is is getting about 20 percent of the Democratic vote against Joe Biden. But uh, he brings up a, a question and again, it's difficult for Kennedy because he has a dysphonia. He has a, a, a problem with his voice. And uh, he brings up uh, a, an unusual evaluation of the debating skills of some of his opponents. Uh, listen. At some point, is going to have to debate President Trump, you know, who's the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party. President Trump has shown himself to be the most uh, devastating debater uh, probably since you know, Abraham Lincoln. Okay, again, this is a nephew of, of John F. Kennedy, who was pretty damn effective. He, he won the election in 1960 because he did well in the debates against Richard Nixon, who was also pretty good. And the idea that uh, he, he's saying that Donald Trump is the most devastating debater since Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln and Douglas were both phenomenal, but they had a completely different format. It was not TV. It was speaking to live audiences, shouting because they didn't have microphones then. And they spoke to audiences as large as 30,000 people in their Senate race that they engaged in in 1858. And you read the transcript, and, and Lincoln's words are poetry. Uh, can, can anyone think of some segments of the Trump debate highlight reel that were poetic, inspiring? And, uh, yeah, you're, you're a nasty person. Uh and again, that that this comes from Robert Kennedy, whose own father 
Robert Kennedy Sr. did a pretty impressive job with the debate. It ended up killing him uh, because Siran Siran was watching that debate, and he decided because of the position that RFK Sr. took supporting Israel that he was going to go out and kill him. He wrote in his diary, now he must die. And in any event, uh, for someone in that family uh, to suggest that President Trump is the most devastating debater since Abraham Lincoln, was he uh, expecting a Trump cabinet appointment or something like that? I mean, I would imagine that Trump is going to highlight and send uh, this uh, statement around. Uh, what, what a shock. What a surprise. And uh, by the way, one of the problems about about President Trump, and honestly, I think it's one of the reasons that there are many people, and not just Todd Young, the senator from, Republican senator from Indiana, but other people are going to have a very tough time with uh, supporting President Trump, is his statement that he didn't care. He didn't have any opinion uh, about uh, uh, basically who should win the war, Ukraine or Russia, that it didn't matter. And it matters a great deal. And uh, Zelensky has met with uh, the new prime minister of Italy who uh, hugged him and embraced him and increased the Italian commitment to arms and support. Big increase in German support. And he appeared today with the prime minister of the United Kingdom, the right honorable Rishi Sunak. And um, both of them spoke to the press afterwards. Uh, this is 1A. Today we spoke about the jets, very important topic for us, because we can't control the sky, you know it. So I think you know everything deeply, because we're real partners. Rishi knows all the details, what's going on on our battlefield. Thank you very much. And uh, we want to create this uh, just coalition, and I'm very positive with it. We spoke about it, and I see that in the closest time you will hear some, I think, very important decisions, but we have, we have to work a little bit more on it. And he's talking about getting uh, jets uh, that uh, Britain could provide. And uh, then uh, later there was the reaction of Prime Minister Sunak. Listen. We are going to be a key part of the coalition of countries that provides that support to Vladimir and Ukraine. Now, it is not a straightforward thing, as Vladimir and I have been discussing, to make build up that fighter uh, combat aircraft capability. It's not just the provision of planes, it's also the training of pilots and all the logistics that go alongside that. Now, the UK can play a big part of that. One thing we will be doing, starting actually relatively soon, is uh, training of Ukrainian pilots. And that's something that we've discussed today. We're ready to implement those plans in, in relatively short order, which will mean that we're training Ukrainian uh, citizens to become absolutely combat-ready aircraft pilots, uh, and particularly whether it comes to NATO tactics as well, because that's an important part of the long-term relationship between our countries. So we've had very good productive discussions on that today. Other countries are involved. I'm talking to those leaders. I'll be doing more of that this week in my international engagement, and we're very keen to build that coalition of countries to give Vladimir and his people the aircraft support that they need. That's reassuring and classy and uh, 
long live Prime Minister Sunak. Now, of course, we had uh, Mother's Day yesterday, and uh, there's a movie out there where you would think that it was a perfect Mother's Day selection. Uh, it's a movie starring Jennifer Lopez, who we all know is a mother in real life. Uh, is this the kind of thing that uh, you want to uh, celebrate that holiday with? It is called The Mother. Listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Jennifer Lopez plays an expert sharpshooter and FBI informant who comes out of hiding to protect her 12-year-old daughter from armies of vicious and sadistic mobsters in The Mother, now streaming on Netflix. The secret's out. What do they want? Revenge. They're using her to get to me. What's your plan? She needs protection right now. I'm going to go home. Not till you know how to survive. And J-Lo survives with an unexpectedly convincing performance as a tough, unstoppable action star. The very graphic and often sadistic fight scenes guarantee a serious R rating, while the complicated connection between mother and long-lost daughter is intermittently compelling. Joseph Fiennes and Gail Garcia Bernal make brief appearances as nightmarish villains. Two and a half stars for the Jennifer Lopez vehicle, The Mother, which represents a new direction that's both impressive and oddly chosen for one of Hollywood's biggest stars. Yeah, this is not a romantic comedy, which is what she is uh, known for, of course, above all, plus her personal life, not to mention. Speaking of personal life, I am thrilled to welcome back to the show tomorrow George Will, who is talking about a very serious possibility of a third-party candidate for president, who maybe could even win, conceivably, but certainly could make a huge difference in the campaign. We'll talk about the uh, what happens with a Joe Manchin for President Boomlet uh, with George Will coming up tomorrow. And uh, we're also going to be talking about a new study from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, saying that adolescent mental health has showed some signs of improvement, but remains a crisis. And speaking of crisis, there is a changing religious picture in this country, with some states getting more religious and many other states getting much less religious. What's the political impact of that on the Electoral College and more? We'll get to that and much more all coming up next time in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.